All right. Hey, thank you so much to our praise team for leading us in worship and music this morning. That's a great way to start out the new year. Uh, I tell you, uh, I was about to get all charismatic up here, but I didn't. Anyway, uh, you know, it's been a great year. 2023 was a great year in the life of our church. Uh, We had an elders and deacons meeting this past week, and uh, we had a time to reflect back on what God has been doing in and among us in our church, and it was really a sweet time of 17 men, 12 deacons, five elders, celebrating who God is. And when we sing songs like this, I mean, isn't that what comes to mind? It isn't about us. It's not about anything else. It's all about who he is. He does it all. And so when we celebrated at our meeting and we talked about all that the Lord has done and and shared about what he is doing, it was a celebration of who Jesus Christ is, our Lord and Savior, who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. In your bulletins this morning, you're going to find a, our monthly Grace Life Gazette, which includes our January ministry calendar, as well as an article that I've written entitled New Year's Solutions. And so each month as I prepare to sit down and write my article, there's always a number of different subjects that come to mind. But for whatever reason, recently, I've been thinking a lot about the important concept of solutions. We live in a solution-oriented world, and rightly so. So for instance, if we have a health issue, we go to the doctor, not for him or her to agree with us that we have a problem, but for them to give us a solution to correct what is ailing us. If our car is not running right, we take it to a mechanic shop for them to fix the problem. As a pastor, I am expected to be solution-oriented. So when folks are struggling with various issues in their life and they come to me for help, they, they want a solution to their problem. They want clarity for their dilemma. They want a remedy for what ails them. They're not looking for some short-term anecdotal band-aid. They, they want a permanent solution to their problem. And I understand that. Again, the world is solution-oriented, but we are too. And, and I'm always glad when folks come and they want help with their issue, I'm always glad to point them to God's Word. Because that, I believe, is where the answers lie to all of the dilemmas that we face in this life. So, I will share with folks as they come to me, they're looking for a solution to their issue, and I will share with them from God's Word, but sadly, after I have done that, some people over the years have said to me, that's it? That's it? That's the answer? That's the solution? And I'll say, yeah, that's it. (laughs) It's as simple as that. God's Word provides the answers to life's questions. The Bible is fully sufficient for us to know how to live our lives for Him. And so for the Christian, the questions are never, is this true, or is this relevant, or is this the answer? The real question is, are we willing to do what God's Word says? Are we willing to honor and obey the one who has provided Jesus Christ to come and and to give us salvation through faith in Him Are we willing to do what God's Word has to say? And you would think for a Christian that would be easy. You would think that, you know, we have a relationship with God, we want to please Him with our life, and so therefore, of course, whatever God says, that's what we want to do. But for some reason, the flesh continues to war against the Spirit. And for some reason, that's why we need one another in the Christian life for us to be able to point one another back to what God has to say. The Apostle Peter reminds us that this book contains everything that we need about life and godliness. And so in other words, God hasn't withheld anything from us that we need to know about how to live our lives for him, which means within the Holy Spirit-inspired pages of this book, we have the ultimate resource for knowing how to navigate the difficult waters of this life. This book that we have before us this morning, 
is God's gift of wisdom and instruction for those who want to follow his ways. And it is fully sufficient to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. Well, it would be an understatement to say that I am fired up to return back to our study of the Gospel of John because, as we have seen in our study, it is full of God's solutions for how we are to have a right relationship with Jesus. The Gospel of John gives us the solution to our sin problem. It gives us the solution to our relationship problems. It is a one-stop shop for all we need to know about Jesus and the salvation from sin that he offers. Our text for this morning is a continuation of a lengthy encounter between Jesus and the Jewish elite. Earlier in the chapter, we saw that Jesus had great compassion on the adulterous woman as he forgives her of her sins. But now, this story, he's in the temple and he is teaching. The temple, of course, is in Jerusalem, which is the hub of the nation of Israel. He's engaging with this crowd of people that included a mishmash of scribes and Pharisees, curious onlookers, those who are in the temple to be taught. And so this morning, we want to pick back up where we left off here in verse 48, and I'll read through the end of the chapter, but this is a really important ending to this story. So look at verse 48, John chapter 8 and verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, just for context here, go back to the previous verse. Listen to what Jesus said. So in the original Greek, there are no punctuation marks. There are no sentences per se. There are no paragraph breaks. This is one continuous thought. So when we have in our Bible all these different breaks, and it's for us to be able to understand in a better way. But this is right in line here with verse 47 that says this, He who is of God hears the words of God For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. So Jesus has just said to this crowd, you are not of God. Looked them right in the eye and said, none of you are of God. And then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered and said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you, meaning this whole group of people, you have not come to know him. But I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, listen to this, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As we look at this more in greater detail this morning, I think we're going to find here uh, sort of an easy breakdown. There's really three big picture actions here by Jesus. The first is Jesus' denunciation. Jesus' denunciation. Look at verse 48 again. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
And Jesus answered and said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So if, the, if we've learned anything in our study of the Gospel of John, it's that Jesus just tells it like it is, right? We've seen this over and over and over again. He didn't come to the earth to beat around the bush with obstinate, unbelieving people like this. And again, we've seen this over and over from him in his three-year public ministry. We wouldn't expect anything less from the sinless Son of God. Now, we've seen Jesus exhibit great compassion and, and patience for repentant sinners. But for those who try to hide their sin under the veil of religion, he is bold in his denunciation of them. I just want to remind you, now, we have four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? There are four Gospels that all chronicle the life of Jesus, written by four different authors from four different perspectives. So, there are different accounts of these stories or these things that we're going through in the Gospel of John that are recorded in other Gospels by other writers. Now, this isn't a perfect... Um, it's not, it's not something perfect from Matthew here, but I, I do want to take you to Matthew chapter 23. That's not it, it specifically about this uh, encounter that Jesus has in the temple, but he's addressing the same people. So I want to take you to Matthew chapter 23. And again, Jesus does not mince words with these so-called religious people. This is a, the great passage here in Matthew chapter 23 that describes eight woes. I, I want you to, I, I really want to go through this, and I want you to see how Jesus addresses these kinds of people. Look at verse 13. Again, eight woes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who enter to go in. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. <clears throat> you blind guides who strain out a gnat <coughs> and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear 
righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus just tells it like it is. He just tells it like it is. I, I, I love to watch him. I love to see his great compassion for the adulterous woman, where he literally got down beside her and came alongside of her as she was repentant of her sin. And he loved on her, and he forgave her, and he was compassionate toward her. But these people who pretend to be religious, who are leading people astray, in their religiosity, he has no time for them whatsoever. He confronts them straight on. He says to them eight times, you are a bunch of hypocrites, literally actors, people that are acting like you are spiritual, but you are not. He says you're like the tomb that is in the graveyard that has been whitewashed. The tomb's been whitewashed, but inside the grave, dead men's bones. That's who you are. He's got no room for these people. And so he, he, he says to them unequivocally, you are a bunch of hypocrites and liars, and you're not of God. So Jesus is not a wimp. Jesus went right after these people. You know, in Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount, he made an appeal to the crowd by giving an illustration that went like this. And you, you probably remember this. It's Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I've always been enamored with that. I've always been thinking about the meaning of that. In other words, the path toward the wide gate that leads to destruction is heavily worn down. Millions of people have walked on that path, but the path toward salvation is barely worn. When I was in Israel uh, five years ago, we were uh, sort of out in the country, and we were going to uh, see what's called the Valley of Elah, and this is where David and Goliath went at it, and where David picked up the five smooth stones out of the brook, and he put them in his sling, swung the sling, hits Goliath, nine-foot-tall Goliath, right in the forehead, drops him like a bad habit. He goes down and kills him. This is one of the great spots in Israel, but it's not touristy. So a lot of the places that we went to are like national parks. So you go in, you check in, you get your badges, you go in and you look at the thing and then you leave. This is just on the side of the road, okay? So there was a little like area that you could pull the bus off in and then you get out of the bus and it's just like tall weeds and trees and stuff like that. And so uh, everybody gets off the bus and there's this big worn path and so everybody just starts mindlessly walking down this path. And I'm thinking, that isn't going to the right place. I mean, I, I'm a little taller, so I could see. And I'm thinking, that's not the right way. But everybody's going that way. And you know how it is, the old herd concept, right? Five people go that way. Well, that must be the right way. And so they just follow on. And I'm looking up above the thing, and I'm going, I don't think that's the right way. So I say this to the guy that was with me, and I said, I don't think that's the right way. I think the right way is over here. This path is just worn down, completely worn down. You could tell that that's the way that everybody was going, but I found a little tiny path over here that seemed like that was the way to go. And so me and this other guy, we didn't follow the crowd. We went over here, 
And we, found, and we got there, and we were waiting for these people. Like, where are these people? Well, they had followed this worn path, and they were way away from where they needed to be. So I went like this and waved my arm up into the air. They saw me, and they made their way over to where the small path was. And then they uh, joined in with us. This is what he's describing the masses go down this big, wide path that leads to destruction. And so when Jesus talks to these scribes and Pharisees, he's warning them, you're on the wrong path. You're going down the wrong way. You're following this path that's going to lead to destruction. And all these people that are there thinking, these are religious people. These are our religious leaders in Israel. We're going to follow them. And they follow them right down the path to destruction. And then there's this little path over here that leads to eternal life. And so Jesus is very illustrative. He's very descriptive when he shares about these two paths. Jesus had already warned these people that they were on the path to destruction. But there's hope. There's hope for those people that are going down the wrong path that they can get on the right path. The right path that leads to eternal life if they would just believe in Him. Remember what Jesus told them back in verse 44. If you'll look at that. He says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and a father and the father of lies. And this is who Jesus is associating these religious people with. He's he's associating them with their father, the devil. So Jesus made it very clear to them and all people that you either fit in one of two categories. You're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. Those who are a child of God want to please God. They want to honor God. They want to obey God. They want to tell other people about God. But there are far more children of the devil than there are children of God. The gate is much wider and the masses funnel through the gate that leads to destruction. And so what is our job? What is our job as Christians. Our job is to tell people that they're on the wrong path. They're headed the wrong way. And so to Jesus' point in verse 44, those who are the children of the devil follow his ways, adopt his thoughts, and approach life from a purely worldly perspective. Jesus had just told these same people that they are the children of the devil, and the devil is a murderer, a liar. The truth is not in him. And all this points to what Jesus will eventually say about himself in John chapter 14 and verse 6, when he says that, when he'll say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Satan is the taker of life. Jesus is the giver of life. Satan is the way away from the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father. Satan is a master liar and deceiver, but not Jesus. He is the only disseminator of what is true. He is truth. So imagine these people that Jesus is engaging. They are angry. They're angry. And oftentimes when people get angry they go on an ad hominem attack. And that's what happens here. An ad hominem attack is an intentional skirting around the issue at hand and instead going on a personal attack against another person. And so in this case, instead of dealing with their own sin issues, Jesus is calling them out. He's telling them the remedy, the solution. They turn their guns on Jesus and they personally attack him. And I think we've all seen this kind of behavior more times than we can count. Sadly, even in the church, when people don't get their way or they are confronted on their sin, rather than admit their sin and repent, they deflect. 
And they often will then make personal accusations against those who are trying to hold them accountable. It's the oldest trick in the book. And the sad thing is these kinds of people then want to influence others to join them in their sin. And this is exactly what's going on here with Jesus. It's the herd mentality that I mentioned about the wide path. And when we were at the Valley of Elah, where a few people start walking down the path and everybody starts to follow, mindlessly follow down the path to destruction. So we notice here that they say in the form of a a question, do we rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So you notice this ad hominem attack. The Samaritans who were half Jew and half Gentile were despised by the Jews. This was the greatest insult that they could make against Jesus. And this goes back to what we had said earlier in our study, that there was this false rumor that was going around that someone had come up with that Jesus' real father was a Roman soldier who had a secret affair with his mother Mary, which would make him then a Samaritan. But again, Jesus responds to them, and he says, no, I don't have a demon. I don't seek my own glory, but the glory of the one who sent me. And so Jesus has been crystal clear that he came to the earth to do the will of the Father. Just go back a couple of pages to John chapter 6, verse 37. John 6 and verse 37, everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. And so when Jesus says he doesn't do anything for his own glory, I want you to think about this. Jesus, holy God, who came to the earth to take on flesh, to do the will of the Father, deserves all the same glory that the Father deserves, but he reserves the glory for the Father alone. And so when we think about that, that should make us sit up in our chairs evaluate our own lives. This is Jesus, God, who is deflecting all of the honor and glory and praise to the Father. He comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came so that the Father would be glorified, not himself. Of course, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that the mission of the Christian is to do all things for the glory of the Lord. Whether it's even eating or drinking, whatever it is, we are to do it for his glory. We're to glorify God in everything we do. What does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God, to bring glory to God? Well, he's already glorious. We, We don't add to his glory right? We don't add to his glory. We don't uh, give him more glory. He is as glorious as he can be. He is the holy God of the universe, the creator of all things. Before Abraham was, he was. He is holy God. So what does it mean to glorify him? What does it mean to to give him glory. I mean, that, that's really at the heart of what we're to do in our lives, right? We're to give the Lord glory, whatever it is, mundane things, eating and drinking, whatever it is, we're to do all things for the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, I think it means a lot of things. It means that everything we do is to be done with him in mind, to shine the light on him. We don't add to his glory, but we magnify it. We, we, we show other people his glory by how we act. We shine the light on him. We praise and honor him. An old preacher once said, this, is, this means to make him famous, to make the Lord famous in all that we do. And so I've been asked about this a lot in my, in my ministry, and there's, there's a, if you're a believer in Christ, there is a, 
there's a lot of things that have happened when we've come to faith in Christ, right? We've possessed the Spirit of God, so we have God in us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. We have the Lord living in us. He's taking up residence in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. But there's a, a thing that goes with that. It's, it's, I call it a God awareness. You know what I'm talking about? All day long in my life, all day long, every day in my life, I am constantly aware that God is scrutinizing and looking at my thoughts, my actions, and all of that. To the point where I'm not always obedient. And so there are times where I sin. I think the wrong thing. I do the wrong thing. But it's in those times that I know that God knows and sees that I have thought the wrong thing or I have done the wrong thing. It's this God awareness in our lives that drives us back to Him, constantly back to Him. You know what I'm talking about? It's this awareness that we are to please and honor and praise and glorify Him with our lives. And we don't do it perfectly, and it should drive us crazy when we are disobedient to the Lord. He sees it all. He knows it all. But it's that God awareness that leads us to be thinking about how are we to glorify God in this circumstance. Now we go back to our passage in John chapter 8 in verse 51. And we see this. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Think about that. If anyone keeps my word, they will be spared destruction. They will receive eternal life. They'll never see spiritual death. And this parallels Peter's confession at the end of chapter 6 that only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And so first we have Jesus' denunciation of these unrepentant sinners. And now second, we find Jesus' declaration. And we see that here in verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if, if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is the great declaration by Jesus. And so this back and forth continues, the Jews double down on their accusation that Jesus must have a demon, and their substantiation for that is that everyone will eventually die. Their father Abraham died, the prophets died, everyone dies, they reason. So how can Jesus declare that those who keep his word will never die? To say such a thing, he must be demon-possessed, they reason. All throughout Jesus' dealings with the Jewish religious elite, we find that they are spiritually blind. Don't you just want to shake them and go, that's not, he's that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's saying. But they don't get it. They're, they're spiritually blind. Their responses are physical or worldly in nature, not spiritual. Jesus is speaking here of spiritual life and spiritual death, but they just don't get it. And they say, who do you think you are? Our father Abraham died. You're surely not greater than he is. And then Jesus cuts to the chase and he tells them, you claim to know God, but you have no idea who God is. But I do, Jesus says. And so did your father Abraham. Look at verse 56. Verse 56, 
says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, Hebrews eleven thirteen says, all these died in faith, meaning these Old Testament believers like Abraham that are listed in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, without receiving the promises, having, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, Abraham saw from a distance what God was doing and what he was going to do as he fulfilled his covenant with him through the birth of Isaac. So Abraham has been mentioned several times now by these folks, if you've noticed in the story. Look back at verses 39 through 42. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So that's another jab. We are not born of fornication. That goes back to that old uh, rumor that Mary was impregnated by a Roman soldier. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. So I don't know if you've asked the question, but it's good to ask questions as you go through uh, the study of Scripture. It's good to be inquisitive. A good Bible student is always asking questions, always wanting to know the answers, always wanting to know the solutions. And so I think a legitimate question is, why is Abraham being mentioned so much here? Why is it that Abraham's name is mentioned so much in this exchange with these people? Well, it's because you remember that some 2,000 years prior to the birth of Christ, God had made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, and that's referred to as promises. And because of this covenant, he's viewed as the father of the Jewish people. He was, in a sense, the representative of the Jewish nation or the Jewish people, Abraham. So he's considered the father of Israel, the father of the Jewish people. So in that encounter, some 2,000 years before Jesus, God made three unconditional promises or covenants with Abraham as the representative of the Jewish people. And I, I just want to real quickly give those back to you again because understanding that is important, not only just here uh, in the Gospels, but as we understand the Old Testament. So the first promise was that Israel would one day fully occupy the land that God intended for them. Of course, we're seeing this in real time, right? If you're watching the news at all, you know that there is a huge battle going on between the Palestinians and the Jews. And what is it over? Do they just not like each other? No, they don't like each other. But why don't they like each other? Because it is an ongoing dispute over the land in Israel. And so at the root of all this fighting is who owns the land. The Palestinians believe that the land is theirs. And the nation of Israel believes that it is theirs. And so whose land is it? Now, if you'd like, you can go back with me to Genesis chapter 12. We find the answer here. It's very clear. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. And I'm going to walk you through some passages here very quickly in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. God promises Abram who had just arrived in Canaan, and he says this, to your offspring I will give this land. So this is a perpetual covenant. It's through and with Abraham as a representative of the Jewish people, but it lives in perpetuity. In Genesis 15, in verse 18, God expands on that unconditional promise, and he says, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 8, God reiterates the promise to Abraham, adding that the land gift is irrevocable. 
He says, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And God later repeats the promise to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4, and then to Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 13. And just a side note, but it's interesting that God would later change Jacob's name to Israel, right? So the basic dimensions of the land promised to the nation of Israel are laid out in passages like Exodus 23 and verse 31, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 4, but the promise is sure even when Israel was expelled from their land, which has happened twice in history, God promised they would return. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 30 in verses 4 and 5. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. And so this part of the Abrahamic covenant is also referred to as the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant. And so whose land is it? It's Israel's land. God gave it to them. And so this is what is at the heart of what we're seeing today in real life. But Israel will one day fully possess the land. When will that be? Perhaps not until after the return of Christ. Number two, the second promise was that God, would make, that, that God would make with Abraham was that his seed would produce generations of people. Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 8 says this. I'll read it to you. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, greatly so, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come out of you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and your seed after you, and I will give you the land to you in which you are a stranger and your seed after you, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so there's three key words to remember as it relates to the Abrahamic covenant. Land, the land promise. Seed, that God would make a great nation from the seed of Abraham, which is important, and I'll explain in a moment. But the third promise is blessing. Land, seed, blessing. God promised Abraham that he would bless him. So God promised Abraham that he would be blessed in order to be a blessing. So listen to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Go from your country, your, you, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God blesses Abraham so that he would bless others in perpetuity. And that fulfillment of the blessing is where? In Jesus, right? Through the line of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the blessing. He's referred to as the seed of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. So again, what I've just shared, it's a bit of a primer on the three unconditional promises of the Abrahamic covenant, but it's so vital and important for our understanding as we interpret Scripture. So all of that is why Abraham's name keeps coming up in the conversation between Jesus and these people in the temple. So going back to our passage here in John chapter 8, as we move towards closing this down this morning, take a look at, at um, verses 56 through 58. So all of this talk about Abraham leads Jesus to make this holy proclamation. Look at verse 56. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So they think they're being cute. When they say to Jesus, you're not even 50 years old yet. They just throw a number out. You're not even 50 years old yet. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus makes this holy proclamation. That he is the great I am. Yahweh in the flesh. God incarnate. We looked at this back in a good amount of detail when we were going through chapter 6. Jesus is saying here that he preceded Abraham because he is eternal God. And it's because of this holy proclamation that we close out the chapter with this third action of Jesus, and it is his departure. His departure. First, his denunciation. Second, his declaration. And now third, his departure. Verse 59, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I, I read that, and then I read it again, and I read it again, and I thought, there's got to be more to this. There's got to be more to this. In the mind of the Jews, what Jesus had just said, before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was, what he was saying. They knew exactly what he was referring to. And in their mind, that was blasphemy. Because they clearly understood Jesus to be proclaiming that he was God. And so they sought to stone him to death in obedience to Leviticus 24 and verse 16, which says that if anyone blasphemes God, he's to be stoned to death. So according to this account, rather than get hit with a bunch of flying rocks, Jesus got out of harm's way and removed himself from the situation. Perhaps even supernaturally so. And I get that hint because of what is said in the Gospel of Luke about this encounter. It almost appears that Jesus just walked through the crowd. Maybe invisibly so. Supernaturally so. Let's not forget, Jesus could have wiped these people out with a word or a thought. He could have wiped them out if he wanted to. But as we have learned throughout our study of the Gospel of John, Jesus was in full submission to the Father. The Father had an appointed time that Jesus would go to the cross and die for people like us. That time wasn't yet. They could throw a million stones at Jesus. And it's not going to kill him. The time is not yet. God has an appointed time for that. And he has an appointed time for us because he's sovereign. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. I remember talking to my father about that when he was laying on his deathbed in the hospital probably a day or two before he passed away. And I said, Dad, you know, we all have an appointed time with death. It's appointed unto man once to die. And for the Christian, what a glorious thing. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We put so much stock in the temporal. We put so much stock in this life. It's hard not to notice that Jesus' resolve is amazing. His long-suffering exemplary. I remember talking with my dad, and and, and when he was on his deathbed, I remember just having this, this peace about the conversation because I'm not kidding you, my dad never wavered one bit on his deathbed because he knew who his Savior was. He knew that he was a child of God. Jesus' focus is on his God. It's on the task that God had given to him. He's undeterred. He's focused. 
He knows why he came to the earth, to do the will of the Father. He knew his time was not yet. And so he kept his eyes on God. He kept his eyes on Christ. And again, it's so convicting that we so quickly and easily can take our eyes off of Christ. We can take our eyes off of God and what he wants in our life. We're, We're really good at it at times where we can take our eyes off of what is important. We get so easily distracted. Sometimes the littlest things can distract us, sidetrack us. Sometimes for a long time. These are just reminders as we go through the Gospel of John. Just just reminders of what's important in life. Who's important in our life. I hope you're magnifying the Lord with your life. I hope that's your heart and your desire to glorify Him in what you do. Look, we're not great at it. We should be getting better, not worse. We should have our eyes on Christ, pleasing Him in all respects, because one day we're going to see Him. We're going to stand before Him. Isn't that going to be cool? I In some ways, I'm scared of that, and in other ways, I'm really looking forward to it. Because I know there are times I've disappointed Him. We need to live our lives for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, as we think about the gift of salvation and uh, the, the narrow path that You helped us to get on so that we would go towards You and not towards the world, what, what an amazing thing. Thank You for the gift of eternal life. Thank You that You have saved us from our sin. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, they may be religious, but they have no relationship with Jesus. They have that God awareness that we talked about earlier. It just isn't there in their life. They don't even think about God. They don't even think about You. They don't even think about Jesus. So Lord, I pray that You would convict those who need to be convicted today. Not only if we don't know Christ as our Savior, but if we're not living in the right way. Please do a work in all of our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.